chapter 4 and 5. You guys ready? Now, if you did not hear the first week, there's a lot of good stuff in there, kind of overviewing the book about different ways people look at it. So I need to just briefly recap us on uh, one of those ways in which, well, the ways in which we're going to be approaching Revelation. So first of all, I want to say that my goal in teaching this book to us as we go through Revelation, which will take us to Christmas, is to let Revelation loose in our world rather than letting our world loose in Revelation. As G.K. Chesterton had said, it was in the bulletin, I think, on the first week, he had said, of all of the beasts that John saw in his vision, none were so scary as one of his own commentators. And it's been done before that revelation and its beauty and this vision of Jesus has been, uh, well, polluted a little bit with a lot of extra stuff. Some of it is right. Some of it might be too much. And all I want to do is take revelation and this vision that John gets in exile on the island of Patmos and let it loose into our world rather than saying, well, this is happening in the news. Let's see how that fits in revelation. Um, so sometimes those things will match up, but sometimes I think we're trying too hard and we just need to let Revelation do the work and spill out into us. So if you missed, um, there's four main visions in this book. Tonight we're starting vision number two. Each of these visions are marked with John saying, I was in the spirit. So we now see in, of course, chapter four, here we are in uh, verse um, Two, he says, and at once I was in the spirit and behold. So we know we're in a new vision. So the second vision is going to take us all the way to chapter 16. We're going to be basically at the throne of God for the whole vision. And we're going to see things coming from the throne out upon the earth. Then the third vision is going to happen in chapter 17, where we see uh, Babylon, the city Babylon, the whore. And then the fourth vision is going to be Jerusalem, the bride. And that's how the book is going to end. Um, one very important clarification is that eschatology is a fancy theological word for studying the end times. Christology is a big fancy word for Jesus. So what we need to understand in Revelation is that Christology is the primary mode of interpretation. Eschatology is secondary. This is a book about Jesus before it's a book about end time things. And regarding end time things, there is no necessary doctrine that unifies Christians about the end times except that Jesus is coming back. Everything after that is secondary and should never divide the Christians. So how Jesus is coming back, when he's coming back, those kinds of questions are not unified throughout the church and they should not divide us. So... With that said, there's been three basic interpretations through history on this book. You've got the historical interpretation, which looks at Revelation in the lens of the past. All this stuff happened then, and it fulfilled then. There's also the, uh, the theopoetic interpretation, which looks at Revelation in the present, that everything in Revelation is happening in the present and always is happening in the present. It's like this big allegory for spiritual warfare. 
Paul mentions spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. Revelation lets us see how it looks and how that's going on in the world around us. So they would say, there is no one beast, no one antichrist. There have been many antichrists through history. There's a different antichrist for each generation. That's the theopoetic. It's always being reinterpreted. Um, in the past, it was Caesar, it's been the Pope, it's been Hitler, it's been Stalin. You know, it's, it's who, when did you live, where did you live, it might have changed your interpretation on that. Um, and then there's third, the predictive interpretation, which looks at Revelation through the lens of the future. These are things that are going to happen, and they're going to happen like this. Uh, there is the overlap. The way that I'm tr- reading Revelation is I see that we have to take it with its genre, What was this written as? Well, first, it's a letter. John is writing to his churches. It's a letter. And you, Pastor Mike took you through those letters last week. He cares about his churches, so he writes them a letter, and he attaches the vision to this letter so that they can be encouraged. A letter deals with these historical people in the past. So yes, Revelation's addressing events in the past, and he's encouraging people of the past for things that are happening in their time and generation. Yet, Revelation is also what's called an apocalypse. It was Jewish literature which used a lot of vivid images and visions to describe things in a coded way that were happening in the present to encourage persecuted people. It seems very clear from several similarities that Revelation is an apocalypse, though not only an apocalypse. So that would fit with it's always happening in the present because these visions and these images and these metaphors can apply across the board because they weren't meant to be specific. Perhaps, in a way, some of that is happening as well. But then third, you have, it's a letter, it's an apocalypse. Third, it's a prophecy. And John says so himself. This is a prophecy. Now, the thing that we often confuse in prophecies is that prophecies aren't always predictive, but they do look to the future, but sometimes by coincidence. A prophet rises in his generation to address the concerns of his generation. And when they address things to their generation, sometimes part of the side effect of the prescription of prophecy (laughs) is that the future often gets foretold as they do so. And so we see that in Revelation is that John is addressing his churches, but the things he talks about in their reality are going to be repeated in the future because that's what the Old Testament prophets did. They talked about their situation, but then Jesus comes and fulfills what happened then at the same time. So it's like that. Um, if you want more, <laughs> more clarification, you got to get the message from that first week. And then lastly, um, the context of this letter is very important, and it is persecution. The Roman Empire is persecuting Christians. It hasn't become necessarily state-sponsored yet, as in the gov- or, sorry, the emperor said, all Christians must die. That will come about 100 to 200 years after this moment, but at the moment, it's more social pressure. Christians are being encouraged to, the only way to survive is to join these clubs, the kind of club that you do your job in, and these clubs would sacrifice food to idols, and then they'd have their orgies and stuff with these parties, and if you weren't part of these clubs, you were completely, you were basically off the grid, so to speak. You didn't really exist in society and you were hated and you were seen as someone who was against the Roman ways and an anti-social person and an atheist. Many Christians were killed as Romans were chanting, kill the atheists. 
So this is the kind of social pressure that's coming upon the church. And so two things are happening. One, yes, they're suffering and it's hard. Second, they're also tempted to compromise and find ways to make Christianity hide in the ways of the empire. And you heard a lot of Jesus' rebuke in the letters that Pastor Mike taught last week. So those are the things that are happening. And you can read your bulletin to see how crazy it was, was that (laughs) Caesar was taking all the titles that the church gave Jesus too. So for Caesar to be the son of God and call Jesus the son of God, those are fighting words. You can't have two kings in the same kingdom, and that's why the persecution's cracking down. So with all of that background, we now look at chapter four of Revelation, and we get right in. So we finished the letters to the seven churches, and now we entered into vision number two. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me, he means that voice in the first vision. You might remember in chapter one, he heard the voice of a trumpet and he turned and he saw the vision of Jesus. Here, the same voice, the same trumpet is speaking. And that trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Okay, we have to play hardball right away. (laughs) Remember, I'm, I'm... my job, remember, you guys, is to critique, not to criticize some of our beliefs in Revelation, right? There's a difference. Critique is to look at fairly and evaluate strengths and weaknesses. To criticize is to basically one-sidedly accuse and say, this is bad, dumb. You're dumb for, this, for believing that. So we're going to critique. So we're going to hardball right off the bat. After this, quote, in the New King James, after these things, metatauta is the Greek word, and it's been well taught and well known that after this, metatauta, after these things, the this or the these things is referring to the churches in the letters prior. So after this, in other words, after these seven churches, now I saw this. And many interpreters have took this to mean after this, the churches means the church age is over at this point. And so the church must be raptured into heaven. And to affirm this thought, we see John himself going up into heaven at the sound of a trumpet, nonetheless. As 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 say, it'll be at the blast of a trumpet that the rapture is going to happen. So it seems very obvious that the rapture would happen here. It seems that that would be pretty clear. To further the point is that the church is not mentioned again until the very end. So where do they go? They must not be on the earth anymore. They must be in heaven because we don't see the church anymore. Well, That sounds convincing until you consider this. After this may refer simply to the order in which John is seeing his visions. After that vision, here's this vision. Here's the next thing. Sometimes we take after this to be chronological. Like this happened right after this, after this, as if the visions are a timeline for events. When John might very well be saying, after this, I saw this vision. After this vision, I saw this vision. They may not be in chronological order. Much of what the prophets saw in the Old Testament make absolutely no sense in chronological order. It's like, here's something in 500 years from now. Here's something five days from now. Here's something 2,000 years from now. Here's something yesterday. Here, It's like back and forth. And that's why it's so hard to read the prophets. Like, what is going on? So after this could simply mean, here's the next vision. How about John's transportation into heaven as a picture of the rapture? 
It's fair. It could be a type of the church going up to heaven. But you also need to consider that in the Old Testament, it was very common for a prophet to be transported in his vision elsewhere. And you don't go back and read those as the rapture. So we're being a little bit inconsistent if this is a type of the rapture. For example, Ezekiel was transported and Isaiah was transported. And then the voice like a trumpet. Well, I've already mentioned that this is the same voice as the trumpet over in the first vision in chapter 1. You'll notice in chapter 1, verse 10, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Then he's saying here in chapter 4, which I heard speaking to me, I'm sorry, uh, and the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet. It seems that he's hearing the same voice, and that's not necessarily a rapture trumpet. To add to that, why is this trumpet the rapture and not the other trumpets that come that seem to be bigger trumpets? And there are trumpets, it should be the last trumpet, but it's the first trumpet. It doesn't seem to add up with just making the trumpet any old rapture trumpet. And then finally, um, the very convincing argument that the church is not seen after chapter 3, therefore they must be out of the picture. It sounds good until you realize that the church isn't mentioned in heaven either. So, okay, the word church doesn't show up with things going on on earth, but then you should expect to see the word church for things going on in heaven, but it's just not mentioned. Instead, you see the word saints. The saints did this. This was happening to the saints. And many people will say, well, the saints refer to Jews that are converted or to people that are left behind and become Christians during these terrible things that are happening. The problem is, is that nowhere in the New Testament is that the sole meaning of saint. Every other place in the New Testament, saint always refers to Christians in the church. It means set apart ones, holy ones. So why are we suddenly changing the definition of saint to make it fit that the church is gone and the rapture has happened? So that's where I simply say, hold on, wait a minute. I'm not saying the rapture can't happen. We can believe that and that's fine. I am only saying as a serious Bible teacher, I'm trying to be that we cannot use chapter four as evidence that the rapture happens right there. Because to me, it seems like we're reading an idea into these words rather than letting it just do its own work. And what we have going on is John saying, here's my next vision. I was transported like the prophets of old into the vision itself. And these are the things that I saw. So, is this vision in the future? It seems rather to me that we're not looking at the future when the church is raptured into heaven. We're looking at heaven as it is now. This scene we see in chapters 4 and 5 is happening tonight. It was happening yesterday. It's going to happen tomorrow. This is the ongoing eternal worship of God. And it's not waiting for some date on the calendar. And it's not waiting for us to get caught up into it. It's happening now. And if you're not joining it, you're missing it. Jesus said in chapter 3, I stand at the door and knock. You aren't the one coming up to heaven and knocking saying, let us in. We want to get this party going. It's him who's inviting us to something that's been happening from eternity past. That's why he created us in the world, not to be loved, but so that we could be loved. He wanted us to be brought into his loving embrace. He wanted someone else to participate in the greatness of the Trinity's relationship. And this is the same with worship. He's calling us into it. So we then get to verse 4. 
And this is where now we have to ask questions, more questions. Verse four, around the throne were 24 thrones. Now, you could think of that as like a circle. They're circling the throne. But if you think of um, historical thrones, what probably you see is the one seated on the throne is up on the steps, front and center. And then you have coming off of his right and his left on each side, 12 thrones. And they're like the council. And if you were in court, you'd come in between, you'd be flanked by these 24 thrones and be facing the one seated on the throne of thrones. And so it's probably what you see here is John's entering into this and he's, seeing, and he's just in awe of what he's seeing. And we see these 24 thrones and seated on the thrones are 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Okay. Who are these 24 elders? First, go back with me to chapter 1. Verse 5. It's in the middle of verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. So the opening of the letter starts by saying, hey, this is, a, this is from Jesus who made us a kingdom of priests. And that was what God was promising to the Israelites in Exodus 19, you're going to be a kingdom of priests for me. So I'm going to make you guys royal. You're going to be doing my work, the king's work, and you're going to be priests, meaning you're the connectors between me and all the other people in the world. A kingdom of priests, a royal mission. Now, when we come here to these 24 elders, the white robes speak of a priesthood. Priests wore white and they were always pure. And then the golden crowns speak of royalty. So what we see in these people are the combo pictures of a priesthood and a royal a royalty. A royal priesthood is seen in these 24 elders. So it suggests that we have a picture of God's people. Now, why 24 elders? Because this is not limited to us in the 21st century. God's people can span all the way back to Abraham, maybe even Adam. So 12 of these 24 priests are Old Testament believers and the other 12 for the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Representing their representatives, one from each tribe. So, so the people of Israel who were believers, they're represented here in 12 of them. The other 12 being the 12 apostles are representing the believers in Jesus, the New Testament believers. And so that together we have the full picture of God's people becoming the royal priesthood before his throne, worshiping him day and night. That seems to be what we have going on with the 24 elders. Um, other possibilities are that they are angels. A lot of people see them as a, as a, you know, you have cherubim, you have seraphim, you have archangels, and then you have the elders. That's another order of angels. And um, commonly taught, if, you, if chapter 4 is the rapture, then you simply have in the 24 elders the raptured church in a vision of the future worship that's going to happen in the future. So... Let's go now to verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. That comes from Exodus 19, the vision of Sinai and God coming down on Sinai. There was thunder, lightning, and rumblings. And Israel was afraid and asked Moses to speak to God on their behalf. (laughs) Well, here at the throne, we have the same God here. 
and things are terrifying in his power. Uh, so that's what that is. And then verse 6. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And one is like a lion, one is like an ox, one is like the face of a man, and one is like an eagle in flight. What are these four creatures? They're probably a symbolic picture of creation worshiping God. I have three reasons for this. First, it's creation's purpose to worship God. We have Psalms like 19 that say the heavens declare the glory of God. That's what they do. And then you have in Psalm 148 too, it talks about the creation itself praising God. God made his creation to reflect his beauty and goodness. It's praising him. That's one reason. Uh, you also notice in 5 verse 13 that this is what is going to ultimately be fulfilled. Look at chapter 5 verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures, the witnesses to creation's worship testify by saying, amen, so be it. That's what we're here to do. So we do see that creation worships God. These four might be a symbol of the creation worshiping him. Second reason for this is because in the Jewish writings, um, these four creatures that show up in Ezekiel's visions, the Jewish writings had them as the chief heads of the different aspects of creation. In other words, an ox is the strongest and the head of all domesticated animals. The, the face of a man, that's the most intelligent and the top of all thinking animals. You know, animals that can think, we have the most wisdom. An eagle is the top and most superior of all the birds. And then the lion is the most superior of all the beasts of the earth. And so you have the four uh, representatives of four areas of creation. They're the best. And so the Jews commented on that in Ezekiel's vision. And then the third reason for this is that creation belongs to God. And what kings would often do in old times is on their throne, they would carve into the throne or by putting statues next to the throne, symbols of their strength and of what they want to be known for. So for example, Solomon on his throne, we read that he had 12 lions carved because he wanted to be seen as the mighty, vicious, you know, lion-strong ruler of the 12 tribes of Israel. And God could be putting here, his throne is made up of not just carved animals into his throne, but these animals are living and breathing and they're worshiping him as he sits on this throne flanked by what represents all of creation. That's a powerful picture. Everything is worshiping him because he is the God of all of it. Other possibilities are that these are angels, cherubim, seraphim. Um, They represent the four portraits of Jesus in the four gospels. The lion is Matthew's gospel. The ox is Mark's gospel because Jesus is a servant. The man is Luke's because Jesus is the son of man. And in John's gospel, he's the eagle because he's the son of God. That interpretation came to us early, early from the early church fathers, among other interpretations. But that one's been going around the church for almost 2,000 years. Um, Okay, 
And then these elders that we've talked about, they throw their crowns down because this is what worship does. It doesn't humiliate us, but it takes us to a place where we make God who he is and put ourselves in our proper place. So humiliation is recognizing who God is and who we are or who we aren't. Okay, so now the climax of the scene. I saw in the right hand, chapter 5, verse 1, of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll? It's a big deal. All of heaven is now waiting in suspense for this scroll to be opened. And the angel cries out with a loud voice in verse 2, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And so not anybody can open this. This is not for anybody. It's a special scroll. And usually you don't even write on the backs of scrolls because the way papyrus was made, you're writing against the grain on the backside. So you usually never wrote on the backside. So this document is loaded with goods. They had to write everywhere they could on this document. What is this important document? Some have said, maybe it's the names of those who are saved. It's the Lamb's book of life. Others think that it's the future or it's God's plan for the future. This is what's going to happen. It's his, it's his script for the drama, if you will. And then others say that this is the title deed to the earth. One other possible interpretation is one person said that this, they would have thought of when they saw a scroll of scripture because the church then read on, on scrolls and that this is, this is the interpretation of scripture. And as you're going to see, it's only the lamb who can open it. And that's the same with us is only Jesus can open scripture to us. <laughs> There's a lot of good options. <laughs> Which one is it? Probably what we see going on here is we have the title deed to the earth. That includes God's plan for the future because the earth is included in God's plan for the future. So, seven seals, what would often happen in Roman times is with important documents, when someone died or was about to die and they wrote their will, they would then seal the will in the scroll with seven, six to seven seals was usually the number. And each witness of that will would take their signet ring and press it into the wax to lock it shut and to show that no, not anyone could open this scroll without us witnesses coming to open it up and passing the inheritance on to the, whoever it's designated for. So it was a big security measure. Here we have a scroll with seven seals. It seems to fit the Roman standard of passing down a will to somebody. The question is, what is the will? It's the father giving this to Jesus. What is it? If you go to Daniel 7 later on your own time, Daniel chapter 7, you have so many similarities to this passage, it's not funny. It has to be taken seriously. And in Daniel 7, we see the terrible beasts of the earth are put down by the ancient one who sits on the throne. It calls myriads of uh, people to the court, which we have myriads coming up here later. And then it says, one like a son of man, who was identified earlier in Revelation as Jesus. It says he's like the son of man. One like the son of man comes to the ancient of days and receives from him a kingdom that will rule over all people's tribes, languages, and tongues. So in Daniel's vision, Jesus comes to the Father and receives a kingdom from him. Why is this not happening here? Why isn't Jesus stepping forward 
and receiving from the Father the kingdom that was promised to him of all peoples. This, is, this would fit a will. Would not the Father will it over to Jesus? And does this not also include the earth? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the gentle, for theirs is the earth. And so here comes Jesus taking the plan for the future to take the kingdom and to open it up and to take claim upon it. We'll get more into what comes out of it, obviously, because next week we go into all of that. But check out um, verse 5. So no one is coming forward because no one seems to be worthy to open this. And in verse 4, John is crying because, look, the world will never be rescued. It will never be redeemed. The chaos that's controlling it is going to be there forever because no one is coming in to claim it and say, I'm going to save it. I'm going to bring my kingdom. So John's weeping. But then the elder leans forward and tells John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah comes from Genesis 49 verse 9. The root of David, it's Isaiah 11 verse 1, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So hey, cheer up everyone. Heaven, the lion has conquered and he's going to open the scroll. Everything's fixed. It's going to be all right. The book is going to end very well, like chapters 21 and 22 show us. Everything is God's again. He, he rules over all. There's no more crying. Everyone cheer up. And so then John's like, this is too good to be true. And it says that he looks and he sees not a lion who's victorious in might, but he sees instead, verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. Well, that's a different animal than a lion. Mighty, vicious, strong, powerful predator, lamb. Helpless, vulnerable, eaten by lions. And they stink. A lamb standing, so he's alive, but it's as though it had been slain, so it's slaughtered. Seven horns and seven eyes. Horns being strength, eyes being presence. So he's all-powerful and all-present. What a contrast. You're looking for the lion who's conquered, and said there's a lamb who's been conquered. You notice also that it never says that the lamb appeared. He never walks forward. He's apparently there from the very beginning of this vision. But it took John this long to see him. Is that not true to reality? That it's always the lamb who's been slaughtered who's overlooked. Jesus is overlooked all the time. Our presidential elections overlook the slaughtered lambs. We're looking for the mean, vicious, powerful lions. Leadership in the business world. Lions rule companies. Our idea of leadership and what we look for as Americans is a sort of football figure of a man. Tough. He's going to go get them. He's going to get his way. And those are the people we always seem to look to. Like, that's my leader because that's who I want to be. That's strong. We're going to conquer. We're going to make things better. But the lambs are always overlooked. Because they're not out to make a name for themselves. They're there to serve. And they're willing to see that by dominating people, the world's never been better. It's by serving people 
and that the biblical vision of a leader looks more like the lamb. And though the world and John and everybody else overlooks the lamb, heaven sees the lamb as a conquering lion. And this is a very important truth that the church then needs to hear and the church now needs to hear is that the heaven is going to reclaim the earth and bring the kingdom, the scroll, through the conquering lion, but not as Rome would conquer. The conquering lion is going to conquer by giving his life like a lamb. And this is what Caesar would never do. Caesar would never give his life for his kingdom. But Jesus does. And this is why the church needs to hear, Jesus is worthy of being followed, not Caesar. And the church today needs to hear that the way we need to go out into the world is not by trying to tear people into the kingdom like lions and trying to be the powerful church and regain our hold and culture and be just in people's faces and, and put our legislation on people. We need to step back and be the, lion, the lambs, excuse me. We need to be the lambs that are willing to be overlooked but are quietly there serving the people around us. That's what changes the world. We don't need more lions We've had enough of our Hitlers and other lions in history that made their names great. We need lambs who are overlooked and who will be great in heaven's eyes. And John is calling the church to see and practice because many of the Christians then were dying. And they need to see that that's the path to furthering God's kingdom. It's not winning souls. We want to do that because we want them in the kingdom, but winning souls isn't going to advance the kingdom. It's when we see Christians dying for Jesus that the kingdom is advanced. Christians that won't compromise regardless of the great oppression they're facing because that's what Jesus did. No love, greater love has no man showed than the one who's laid down his life for his friend. And that's what advances the kingdom of God is the love of laying our lives down for each other and for Christ. Who is worthy? Adam wasn't. Noah wasn't. Israel wasn't, but the lamb who is slaughtered is. And so we then see towards the end in verse 9, and it's in actually in verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We've been praying that God would bring his kingdom to earth. Jesus taught us, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here the lamb is finally doing that. And the prayers of the saints were brought forward at this moment. Be assured when you pray that heaven hears and the day is going to happen. And then uh, one, 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 one more final thing I want to point out uh, is that in verse uh, 12, I want you to see this. They say with a loud voice, worshiping the lamb, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive. Now there's seven things he receives. Power, worth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. If you go back to 4 verse 11, the 24 elders worship the one who is seated on the throne with only three things. <laughs> worthy are you, O Lord our, and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. But when the lamb is exalted, vulnerable, slaughtered lamb come to serve the world, seven attributes are given to him, three of which are the same that were given to the one seated on the throne. 
Glory, honor, and power. Yep, the lamb gets glory, honor, and power, but also wealth, wisdom, might, and blessing. What does it say? Something that you probably don't need to be convinced of, but it's cool nonetheless to see right there, is that Jesus is exalted as the same status as God. And even to a degree more so because of his sacrifice and his obedience to the Father that all of heaven is giving him not just the three attributes of God, but four more. And that's the lamb that we follow. Controlling history, we're going to be okay. We don't have to worry. We get to worship. 